We're going to be in Romans chapter 2 today. I want to read for us the first 11 verses. Romans 2, verses 1 through 11. You, therefore, have no excuse. You, who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness, your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he's done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be anger, wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress. For every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. There's an old Andy Griffith show where Andy and Aunt Beer talking about Barney. He is such a know-it-all. He's so arrogant. He wants everyone to think that he is the best at everything. Unbeknownst to them, Barney has entered the room, and he's listening to everything they're saying. And they are describing Barney to a T. And they're horrified when they realize that he's listening. The joke is, Barney doesn't recognize himself at all in the conversation. In fact, he joins in and says, I hate people like that. Aren't they the worst? At one time or another, we've all had something like that happen. You know, you're out on the road somewhere on the street, and somebody says, make way, coming through, and you take your spouse or your friend, and you move them out of the way. And then that guy points at you and says, hey, I'm talking to you. That's what's going on in our text. Paul is talking about people who think he's talking about somebody else. They're nodding their heads in agreement and saying, yeah, don't you hate people like that? Aren't they the worst? So in Romans chapter 2, Paul says, hey, I'm talking to you. I think he says it in a Bronx accent too. Hey, I'm talking to you, right? In the previous passage, the one we looked at last week, Paul described a world that is at odds with its creator. Now, he doesn't say how the trouble started. He's saving that for chapter 5. But he does describe what's been going on. The creator God is angry because people in their godlessness and wickedness are suppressing the truth. And the more they suppress the truth, the greater their godlessness and wickedness become. It's a vicious circle. To be more precise, it's a downward spiral. It has pervaded every part of society from the workplace to the back alley, from the privacy of the bedroom to the commotion on the public square. The rift with God affects leaders and nations and parents and babies. 
It encompasses everyone because it's not something that's happening somewhere out there, but in here, in hearts and minds, in the very essence of human nature. Humanity has been cut off from God, and the result has been disastrous for everybody. As Paul describes what happened, he knows that there are some people listening who are nodding their heads and saying, yeah, don't you hate people like that? They're the worst. For the most part, it's the observant Jew and the morally upright Gentile who are thinking that. They're the kind of people who come to church with a pitchfork instead of a rake. So you know what I mean? Instead of taking the words in, they're always tossing them out to somebody else. Oh, I hope Mary heard that. I hope John heard that. You know? Sometimes when I leave after a sermon, somebody will say, boy, I wish so-and-so had been here for that. Yeah. There was a farmer who went to church week in and week out. Not our church, but a different church. So any of you farmers, I'm not talking about you. And he was the worst sinner in the whole county. And everybody knew it. And every week when the preacher was working on his sermon, he had that farmer in mind. He'd get in the pulpit and he'd talk about drunkenness because, of course, the farmer drank too much. And he'd talk about gossip because the farmer was a notorious gossip. He'd talk about lust because the farmer had a wandering eye. But each and every week at the conclusion of the service, the farmer would shake his hand and say, you really told him this week, preacher. It seemed like nothing he said would sink in. One day there was this terrible snowstorm, and no one made it to church except for the preacher and the farmer. And the farmer said, well, preacher, I guess you're going to have to cancel services today, seeing it's just you and me here. But the preacher saw his opportunity, and he said, no, we're going to carry on just as if everyone was here. It's faithfulness to the Lord, brother, faithfulness to the Lord. So he began to preach against all the farmer's sins, one by one. When the sermon was over, the farmer met the preacher at the door. He shook hands with him, looked him in the eye, and said, you really told him this week, preacher. Too bad none of them were here to hear it. You ever wonder if you're the one that God's talking to? I do. And sometimes I am. Sometimes he says, hey, I'm talking to you. In verse 1, Paul turns to the person who's been nodding his head and saying, yeah, don't you hate those people? They're the worst. And he says, I'm talking to you. Now, in scholarly language, Paul is using the rhetorical technique known as diatribe. He's carrying on a conversation, an argument, really, with an imaginary opponent. He says, in effect, you are defenseless. Your attorney won't even speak on your behalf. And in Greek, he uses the phrase, oh, man, which is like something an Englishman would have said in the last century when he said, you, sir, I mean you. Or the New Yorker saying, hey, I'm talking to you. What he says is this. When you judge other people, you're pronouncing sentence against yourself. Because you, the would-be judge, are as much a part of this mess I've been describing as the next guy. Maybe you don't engage in inappropriate sexual relationships. But what about greed? What about deceit? What about gossip? What about disobeying parents? You think you're so holy, 
sitting up there with your religious friends in first class. But all four engines are gone, and the whole plane, not just the people in coach, are going down. That's the thing we find so hard to accept, our involvement in the mess. And it's especially hard for religious people to grasp. We think like the guy in the woods who tightens up his shoes as the grizzly bear approaches. You know the story, and, and when the, his companion says, what do you think you're doing? You can't outrun a grizzly. He replies, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you, right? People think they only have to do a little better than some other guy, and they'll be all right. But that's not the right scenario. This is not the grizzly in the woods, but the airplane falling from the sky. And even if the coach section happens to hit the ground first, the stuffed shirts up front will be right behind them. We think we only need to score a little higher on the entrance exam, and we'll get in. But God doesn't grade on a curve. And besides that, we're not taking a test. This isn't a classroom. It's a war zone. And we're behind enemy lines. In verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? When we read that, we're liable to think of God's judgment in these terms. When we die, God will review how we've performed on our tests and assignments, sort of like a teacher doing grading at the end of the marking period. He'll average out our scores, and then he'll add in the extra credit, like faith in Jesus. And the final grade will determine whether we're allowed into heaven or sent to hell. And of course, faith in Jesus alone provides enough extra credit to get into heaven so we don't have to worry. Now, that might be true if Paul were talking about getting into heaven. But what makes us think that's what he's talking about? See, we come and we read that right into the text. He hasn't even mentioned heaven. As a matter of fact, he only mentions heaven twice in this entire letter. Compare that to the 50 times he mentions righteousness and the 50 times he mentions faith. And on the two occasions he does mention heaven, on neither one is he talking about how we get in. Of course, a new heaven and new earth await God's people, joy inexpressible and full of glory, but that's not what's in mind here. The conceptual framework for the teaching on judgment is not entrance into heaven after we die, but acceptance into God's kingdom as God's people prior to the age to come. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> By the way, that needs to be unpacked. And we are going to do that in this series on Romans. Here's the thing. Some people thought they had tickets for the kingdom reserved in their names because they were morally upright or especially because they were religiously faithful. That kind of thinking was common among devout Jews in the first century, particularly diaspora Jews, the Jews who had left hadn't lived in Israel for hundreds of years. Paul probably has in mind a well-known ancient Jewish book when he writes this, known as The Wisdom of Solomon. Its author had written, even if we, and he's talking about Jews, even if we Jews sin, we are yours. 
But he then goes on to imply that other people are not. It was common for Jewish people in the first century to think that they were given a sort of get out of jail free card at birth. They thought that they were pre-qualified because they were Jewish, just as some people today assume that God will accept them because they hold church membership and go by the name Christian. There are always those folks who think that God gives a pass to people like them, sort of TSA pre-check, you know, the premier access pass or whatever. It's to those kind of people that Paul is saying, hey, I'm talking to you. Don't look over there. Look right here. I'm talking to you. In verse 4, Paul says to this rhetorical debate partner, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? That idea and even the language comes right out of Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15. Behind what Paul is saying lies a truth that is often overlooked and sometimes denied, both in Paul's day and in ours. And that is, God cares about behavior. Sometimes we hear people say today, God doesn't care really what you do, but who you are. Now, caring about behavior, God, that's not the only thing God cares about. As some people disastrously conclude. Nor is it the chief thing that God cares about. He cares about behavior primarily because it's the expression of character. He cares about what we do because it's the indicator of who we are. But the idea that it doesn't matter what we do, an idea that's been around since Paul's day and comes and goes, is simply false. Paul drives a stake into the heart of that argument in verse 16. God will give to each person according to what he's done. Their whole theology is developed to deny that. But that is a direct quote from Psalm 62. And the idea is repeated almost word for word in Job 34, Proverbs 24, Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 32, Matthew 16. There it comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. Uh, by Paul here and in Romans 14, 12, 1 Corinthians 3, 8, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And again from Jesus' mouth three times in the book of Revelation. And those are just passages where these same words are used. The same idea is found throughout scripture, even when those exact words aren't used that God will give to each person according to what he has done, has undeniable biblical support, and yet even in our day, people still deny it. They say that what a person does is not important as long as he has the righteousness of God through Christ. But here's the thing. That's heresy. Always was, still is. Paul and the rest of the Bible refute it. Paul would say, and does say later in Romans, that what a person does matters, not in spite of what God has done through Christ, but because of what God has done through Christ. Now, verses 7 through 10 have been a thorn in the side of biblical interpreters ever since the Protestant Reformation. To those who, who by persistence in doing good, Seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress. The word distress is an interesting word. Um, it denotes a narrowing of the way until a 
a person is pressed in on every side. They feel like there's no room to move. There will be trouble and distress for every being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. That sounds distressingly like salvation by works. I mean, isn't Paul just saying plainly and simply that people earn their way into heaven? The main way interpreters have avoided that implication is by claiming that Paul doesn't mean what he says. I'm serious. That's the main way they avoid that idea. They claim that he's setting us, his readers, up by presenting an impossible situation, which he will later rip to pieces when he comes to chapter 3. All this talk about people doing goods just bait for a trap that he's going to close on us in 3.12 when he says there is no one who does good, not even one. But there are problems with that way of handling the text. First, saying that a biblical writer doesn't mean what he clearly says is not a principle of interpretation, but a proposal for confusion. It submits the Bible to our theological system for approval rather than the other way around. And it's a recipe for spiritual failure. Secondly, it ignores how Paul writes. When he does present an intentionally false premise, which he does on occasion, he has ways of going about it. He lets readers know what he's doing by using conditional clauses like, if this is so, then thus. And when he introduces a hypothetical situation, not a real one, but a hypothetical one, he routinely says things like, I'm speaking in human terms, just as he does in chapter 3, verse 5, and then again in chapter 6, verse 19. But there's absolutely no hint that he's doing that in this passage. None at all. Thirdly, if what he says about this in this passage about judgment is intentionally false, he's just setting a trap for us, why do we find it elsewhere in the Bible? The same teaching appears in Paul's other letters and in the writings of other biblical authors. For example, Matthew chapter 25, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Revelation chapter 21. And finally, such an interpretation utterly ignores what Paul is really doing in this passage. He is saying to the, the moral Gentile and especially to the law-observant Jew, hey, I'm talking to you. He's not going to give anyone a pass on the basis of ethnic origin or religious affiliation. And he confronts those who act like they have such a pass. And yet, where does that leave us? If Paul really means what he says in this passage, if he really means it, don't we have to accept the idea that people earn their way to heaven by doing good deeds? No, we don't. First, we must remind ourselves again that Paul is not here talking about how to get into heaven. The eternal life he mentions in verse 7 is not a metaphor for heaven someday. We translate eternal life, the Greek here and elsewhere, is life of the age, the age for which the people of God have been waiting and praying and hoping, the age when the war is over. Paul has been thinking, is thinking, and continues to think about what is involved in being accepted as God's people in God's kingdom. Yes, those people will be welcomed into heavenly dwellings, but that's not the point here. Okay, So get that out of your mind. Secondly, while we must believe that Paul means what he says here, 
We also must believe that he means what he says in chapter 3, verse 20, when he writes, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. What he says to the Galatians, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What he says to the Ephesians, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works. If our theology, see, here's a good test for our theology. If it requires us to give up one clearly stated biblical truth in order to hold on to another, then there's something wrong with our theology. If anyone is inconsistent here, you can bet it's not the Apostle Paul. But how can we hold both a judgment based on works, which the Bible clearly teaches in all kinds of places, and a righteousness based on Christ, which the Bible also clearly teaches? How can we hold on to one without letting go of the other? The answer is that these truths are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they are necessarily inclusive. It is the person who has the righteousness of Christ that Paul's talking about in verse 7, who persists in doing good, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile. The people in that verse who seek glory, honor, and immortality are the very ones whose lives are being transformed by the righteousness from God that comes by faith. The people who persist in self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil better, are unpersuaded by the truth, but persuaded by evil are those who lack the righteousness of God that comes by faith, irregardless of their ethnic origin or their religious heritage. Hearing that, you might say, but then how can we judge whether someone's among God's people or not? How can we judge whether someone really is persisting in doing good, seeking glory, honor, and immortality? We can't know that kind of stuff. Exactly. We can't. And we better not try. It's not our job to judge anyone. We can't see where people have come from. We can't see where they end up. We're terrible judges. Paul's not writing these things so that people will judge their neighbor, but so that they'll look at themselves. He's talking particularly to the self-satisfied religion-trusting man or woman. He's saying, hey, I'm talking to you. The key is found in verse 11. It's the pivot around which this entire section, which starts in chapter 1, verse 18, and ends in chapter 3, verse 20, revolves. For God does not show favoritism. That's not something that the moral Gentile or the religious do, especially the Jew, since it's found in the Bible over and over again, could deny. That phrase is repeated in Deuteronomy more than once, in Second Chronicles, in Job, in Proverbs. Someone might say, yeah, but that's Old Testament. Okay, so add Matthew, Luke, Acts, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, First Peter. It's found more often in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. This is another one of those undeniable biblical truths that people try to deny. Okay, let's bring this home to us. In this text, the threat to truth, and therefore the threat to a healthy, happy, holy life, doesn't come from either Gentile or Jew, but from presumption. Some people were taking for granted that though all, although everyone else was wrong, they were right. 
Though everyone else was in need, they were doing fine. Though God was angry with other people, he's quite satisfied with them. They took this for granted because they felt either morally superior or more sincerely, religiously faithful than other people. But Paul knew what that kind of religion does. Instead of shielding people from sin, it shields them from God. It doesn't help people know God. It leaves them ignorant of him. It ignores what the Bible says and insists that God does show favoritism to certain people. And of course, they are those certain people. That kind of religion hinders people from spiritual progress. It stunts their growth. And you know what? It still does the same kind of thing. A dead strain of Christianity can inoculate a person against the real thing. If your religion is about destination but not about transformation, if your religion depends upon words you said rather than what God has said, and what you've done rather than what Christ has done, if your religion sees Jesus as the porter who's going to conduct you to your heavenly home someday rather than the master to whom you owe your life now, then run, don't walk to Jesus. Presumption can kill. Don't trust your religion. Okay? Put that on your Facebook page. <laughs> don't trust your religion. Our pastor says so. Don't trust your faith. Don't trust your heritage. Don't trust what you've done. Going to the altar or signing a prayer card. Don't trust what you intend to do. All that does is lead to presumption. Trust God. Trust Jesus. Give yourself to him. Follow him and he'll lead you to glory, honor, and immortality. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I feel like some of the things that I've said could be misunderstood, taken out of context, or taken wrongly because we're not grasping the whole letter yet. So I pray you'll protect us from that. I also pray that you'll protect us from presumption. From thinking that you show favoritism. From taking the Bible and making it serve our views instead of the other way around. Lord, we want to see how great the good news of the gospel is. So help us see it for what it is. And be grateful in Jesus' name.